Welcome to our very first Senses of Cinema podcast. I'm one of the editors at the journal, Mark Freeman, and I'm joined today by my co-host, writer, academic, film programmer, and Senses board member, Eloise Ross. Hi, Mark. Hi, Eloise. <laughs> and in our very first rotating third chair this month is Cesar Alboran Torres. Cesar, can you tell us what you do in the world of screens? Yes, of course. So uh, I'm an academic I'm a film critic, and in my past life, I used to be a film journalist and the editor of a film magazine back in my home country, Mexico. Fantastic. Thanks, Cesar. Now, before we start the show properly, I think it's probably worth letting people know, since it is our first episode, what we're going to aim for with this podcast and what you can expect over the coming months. At Senses of Cinema, we felt that the one thing that we could really add to the journal, which has been such a strong voice in online discussion of cinema since the frankly, the beginning of this century, was to add an audio component. Because as a journal we only publish quarterly, the podcast can serve the role to fill in some of the blanks, you know, engage in some of the debates that are contemporary and happening in a kind of more immediate, more uh, kind of fast-paced way that we can't kind of do in terms of uh, a quarterly journal. And it also makes Senses of Cinema portable, so you can listen to us wherever you go, whenever you want. We're going to be releasing monthly episodes of this podcast, and to subscribe, all you have to do is head to censusofcinema.com, click on the podcast link, which is going to direct you to our podcast page, click on the menu icon, and add your iTunes RSS or Android feed to your own device. Now, we're also establishing a Patreon account at Census, so if you subscribe, you'll be helping to keep Senses of Cinema going and hopefully propel us to our ultimate goal of paying our writers and, indeed, even our trusty technical producer for this podcast, Troy Morey. Plus, if you become a patron of Senses at the highest level, you'll get to listen to an ad-free version of this podcast as well as get a bonus segment each month. So to do that, just head to censusofcinema.com, click on the Patreon link, and then follow the prompts. All right, so let's get things underway. On today's show, we're going to be looking at the release of Denis Villeneuve's Blade Runner 2049, a sequel to Ridley Scott's 1982 classic. And also, on the back of a retrospective at Locarno and another programmed for the Canberra International Film Festival, we're going to look at the incredible career of Jacques Tourneur. And then finally, we turn our attention to the man sitting in our rotating third chair this month, Cesar Alvaran Torres, when Eloise and I will dive into his recent article published in the September 2017 issue of Senses of Cinema, titled Spectacles of Death, Body Horror, Affect and Visual Culture in the Mexican Narco Wars. And in our bonus segment this month for our patrons, Eloise Cesar and I are going to be talking through some of the tremendous riches that are on offer in the September issue of Senses of Cinema. Denis Villeneuve's Blade Runner 2049 arrives 35 years after Ridley Scott's original film. It stars Ryan Gosling as Kay, a replicant sent on an investigation into the past that leads him towards the hero of the very first film, Rick Deckard, played again by Harrison Ford. So, Eloise, do you think this film is a worthy companion to Scott's sci-fi noir existential classic? You know what? I don't really. I've been thinking about this a lot since I saw it, um, and the film disappointed me, and I was trying to wonder why. You know, it's a, it's a sequel to the original Blade Runner and in some ways, it's, it might be unfair to compare a film to its original or its remake, you know, depending on, on how a film is positioned. But in this case, because it is a sequel and it does star Harrison Ford and one of the screenwriters is one of the original screenwriters from the 1982 film, 
um, that there is a great tie to the original, but it lacks, you know, I mean, you mentioned sci-fi, noir, existential classic. I think it lacks any noir um, elements and it lacks any existential kind of philosophizing, which was so prevalent in the original. Um, and so it's kind of just this big visual feast, I think, and it is quite beautiful, but also um, not as beautiful as the original. Anyway, I found it quite disappointing, um, and I just think maybe we should go and watch the original. I mean, you know, I do think people should see mm. it because it's an, it's an important contribution to the universe, but I, I did find it a little bit um, lacking. Yeah. What about you, Cesar? How did you find it? I think that Denise Villeneuve uh, did a good job given the circumstances and given the current political and cultural context, which is very different from the original. In the original, we still have that Cold War era kind of feeling around. Uh, the, you know, the uh, Soviet republics still existed, as they do in this one, surprisingly. And also, there, you know, artificial intelligence and robotics were in an earlier stage. So using androids, well, replicants, as a sort of existential question, right? What is to be, what is it to be human? What is it to be intelligent? Mm. What is it to be, right? And I think that today with uh, things like Alexa and Siri and you know, the huge advances in robotics, there's Ishiguro, this uh, Japanese roboticist, is making robots that look pretty much like replicants, yeah. right? So I think that uh, Denise Villeneuve had a very tough job in making a surprising movie out of existential existential questions that have to do with technology. I mean, I, I kind of found that it was lacking in anything at all mm. in, in terms of kind of what it was asking. I think one of the things that made Blade Runner such an interesting film was that you walked away and you were filled with questions. Mm. And I didn't come away with one question from that film. I loved it visually. Like, yeah. visually, I thought it was extraordinary. Mm. But I sort of came away thinking, well, there aren't really any questions here. I, like, there, there's nothing to be solved. There's nothing that is comparable to the experience of watching that first film apart from a kind of visual style. And even that is kind of played with and I think, you know, developed and expanded upon in a, in a much more sort of favourable way. But mm. I sort of walked away thinking, well, I'm not sure that that actually accomplished anything beyond, you know, like literally almost a three-hour exploration of things that didn't seem to need to be explored at all. Did you kind of feel that it was... I got to the end and thought, okay, I sat there for almost three hours and now it's over. I mean, I think it kind of presented a few questions and a few interesting mm. um, scenarios, but it quite swiftly moved on from yeah. from them. R whereas in the original, um, you know, Deckard was figuring out who he was, Rachel was figuring out who she was yeah. um, and how she was meant to deal with her past and her, um, you know, her memories and were they implants and, and all of this. Um, and then you had the, the Nexus 6 group, um, and they had obviously something to overcome. There was, there was no real conflict like that in, in this one, you know, a kind of, um, theoretical conflict or a physical conflict, um, in any way. No, I because Kay knows straight off the bat, he's a replicant. So there's yeah, no, exactly. there's no question of him saying, who am I? Mm. Although that 
kind of does become one of the issues as the as the film progresses. Yeah, and I want to just mention the um, depiction of women in Blade Runner 2049 because it was mm. pretty shocking, um, I've <laughs> got to say. There's a lot to as, talk as about. It is in the original as well. It is in the original, yeah. yeah, that's true. But, you know, we're 35 years in the future um, now, so you would hope that, that some certain things would be different. Mm. Um, what I find really interesting is, you know, we're talking about how perhaps Kay's journey was lacking in, in any real interest. Um, obviously, Rick Deckard is a great character and where he has ended up in this second film is very interesting and the way that he, um, you know, because his emotions went through this huge span in the original to see where they are now um, is is really great, I thought. Mm. And you do find by the end of the film you realise that it is, in fact, Harrison Ford's film. It's Deckard's story. Yeah. It's not Kay's story. No. Um, you know, and so I sort of thought, well, Kay isn't really a very interesting character why is it his? Why is he the lead? You know, I mean, someone else who is more interesting in this film is Love, um, yeah. played by Sylvia Hoeks, and she's mm. uh, gives an incredible performance. Yeah. But she's also a much more conflicted character. I mean, she says, you know, she doesn't necessarily want to be doing the, the things that she's doing. You know, she's more or less a, um, you know, she's a killer. She's doing um, someone's bidding, but she doesn't. She doesn't want to. But at the same time, she kind of enjoys it. And yeah. she's a beautiful character. Mm. And given that in the end you find out it's Harrison Ford's story anyway, I don't see why we had to get get to it via um, this Ryan Gosling. Yeah. Gosling. Yeah. Because he's Ryan Gosling and he has a star power. I mean, he's very good. Oh, I mean, do you think? <laughs> well, he, ha- he does have some star power. No, I mean, no, if you were a studio executive. <laughs> I do. Yes, that's true. You know? Well, I mean, that's true, but it's like it, it, the the film, hopefully, the universe could sell itself on its own. I feel like a very, dis, you know, it's not only that it wasn't given to Sylvia Hoax, this film, but mm. that all of the other women characters basically have zero agency. Um, and it was just disappointing to me that because in the end, you know, Ryan Gosling's doesn't even really matter in the film, I thought. No, it, I mean, to, there's a, a couple of things, you know, the... The idea of Ryan Gosling boggles my tiny mind. <laughs> mm. Like, I recognize that people think that he's great and, I don't know, he's hot and blah. I swear to God, that man's face doesn't move. Like, and oh, I know, I know, like, he's supposed yeah. to be a replicant, but there's nothing going on there. Like, he has one expression. Literally, at the point where Harrison Ford came on, I sort of thought, oh, look, faces move. Yeah. There's an expression on his face. He's like just... He just took his character from Drive. And just See, like... my theory is that's the only expression he has. Mm. I think he's kind of, I don't know, is it like Bell's palsy? It's like everything's just dropped and nothing <laughs> nothing moves on his face. And I... so it's just this dead-eyed look the whole time, like slightly bemused, like, what's going on? And that's the only face that he has. I disagree with you. I do think that he gave a good performance and that obviously being like calm and cool and charming is his star persona. Um, but that did break down as he was confronted with several um, difficult moments in the film and, you know, difficult realisations. I do think he he had some, he gave some painful looks, shall no, we say. No, it's the same look, but sometimes he's looking up and other times he's looking down. That's, mm. the, that's the, like, I am downcast, look at the floor. <laughs> like, crazy. Um, coming back to one of the other things about um, what you were saying about the representation of women, what I was kind of fascinated by was... What's the what's the image of the future in that 
I, I sort of grappled a little bit with where is the image of this future coming from? Is it building on the 1982 vision, mm. which is what you're saying about the whole stuff about having, you know, images of Soviet, kind mm. of Russia, I suppose, represented in the film? Because the images, again, of the women as the kind of holograms, as the, the statues, which look, you know, they're incredible statues and stuff, but they, they are also just, it's just basically naked ladies all over the place. Yeah. And you would think that if... It was an image from today, from this production period. You'd at least get some kind of vague parody in terms of the images. But it seems to me that rather than setting an image of the future coming from 2016 or 17, that actually just carried on, you know, the, the kind of... Cyberpunk setting. Yeah, yeah, and the less sort of, in some ways, less enlightened kind of perspective of the future yeah. from 1982. Yeah, absolutely. I don't absolutely. think it's developed that much, you know, and I think that it's 35 years later, that it sh- or 30 years later, you know, in the fiction of the, the film space, and it should have changed a whole lot, but I don't think it has, and that's a flaw, I think. You know, we mm. want it to be similar to the original, but also it needs to be realistic, and I don't yeah. think it achieves that. Yeah, and, and that's what I couldn't decide, whether... Are they literally saying, let's just carry on the vision of the future where, you know, all of the women are kind of sexualized objects and, and we just keep running with that? I mean, we even get a kind of insta-babe, like a remote mm. control woman who can just be sort of clicked with a remote and up she comes and she's ready to roll. Um, <laughs> you know, like that seems, as you say, like, like some of these images of womanhood in there are kind of in some ways problematic. And I'm surprised that that's the case in his film. Yeah, given given his past with with having such characters, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, and also I think another issue, which is another issue that I found with another Ryan Gosling film, La La Land, is a lack of ethnic diversity. Yeah. I mean, in the first film, you did have some uh, Asian characters. You had Edward James Olmos, who comes back in this film mm-hmm. playing a Hispanic character. But just like in La La Last L.A., this futuristic LA seems to be straight and white, yeah. uniquely. Yeah, and it has influences from. I mean, mm. you know, both of the main women characters are, you know, kind of influenced stylistically by um, Japanese culture. I think you would say, mm. um, but they're, you know, they're not played by those actresses, and I think that's a big problem as mm-hmm. well. Do you think that this sequel destroys anything about the original? I wouldn't say that it destroys anything about the original. I don't necessarily know if it was needed as a sequel. Although, um, I mean, we were talking about Denis Villeneuve. Did he achieve what? I think he did the best he could. And I think the best he could in terms of sustaining a franchise and in terms of keeping his integrity as an auteur, as a filmmaker. I mean, countless people have gone through the, you know, Hollywood machine and lost their integrity. You know, I interviewed Guillermo del Toro once and he was telling me how he had to direct Mimic, which was, he says it's a hideous film. He says, I had to do that. You know, it was like my initiation ritual to go into Hollywood. I had to lose my integrity as a filmmaker. And I don't think Bill Neff has lost that integrity. I mean, Blade Runner with all of its efficiencies in terms of narrative, is closer to Incendies, for example, than it is to Arrival. Mm. Mm-hmm. This, like, unearthing of family secrets, blah, blah, blah. I was like, oh, this is like incend- like a cyberpunk Incendies. Yeah. Right? 
And this uh, very Villeneuve thing, which is the world is, you know, like falling apart and he still finds those moments of stillness, of calmness, which I think is quite, uh, quite remarkable. So I do think, I don't think it adds to the franchise, but I think as a standalone film, it's a beautiful film to watch, as you said. And I think he did the best he could with given the material. I mean, I was really, because, I mean, visually, I, I wasn't much about the, the narrative or indeed clearly Ryan Gosling, but um, visually I was so engaged with it because oh, yeah. it's so extraordinary. I mean, I, I kept, I mean, one of the questions that I had when I came out was because I felt a little bit disappointed in it was whether I was applying almost the wrong frame of reference that I think that I went in thinking this was a Blade Runner film and then I thought maybe I should be thinking more like Lawrence of Arabia or something instead, mm. that, it, that it was kind of this long-form, epic, kind of spectacular, mm. rather than something that was actually concerned with existential issues or crises or, yeah. you know, what is it to be human? It, it, that I mean, it, it touches on those points, but it doesn't seem to care about them that much. And maybe it was a, a, a visual um, story rather than a, a narrative-based one, do you think? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's possible. I do feel a bit sad because I think that the original was both. And I do yeah. find the original even more visually spectacular. I mean, part of what's mm. so great about the original is that it's got this look of futuristic decay that's like always tinged with a nostalgia or calling to the past and the future at mm. once in those images. You know, all of the buildings are kind of um, references to, you know, you've got the Bradbury building, you've got those, um, you know, kind of the the decor, like the the Frank Lloyd Wright in his house, which have appeared in so many films. And you just don't have any of that in the in this remake. So I, I did find it lacking on both fronts, I have to say. Yeah. Well, it sounds like we're pretty mixed on it. I mean, mm. I, I have to say, I still enjoyed it a, a yeah. whole bunch. It just, it wasn't the experience that I was anticipating. I think. Yeah. I mean, perhaps it's made for people who can see it without having seen the original. And, yeah. and maybe it's, it's a better movie if we look at it like that. And I don't know whether any of you have seen, like on social media, people preparing to see 2049 and going back to watch the original for the first yeah. time. And they're all saying how boring it is. Have you been reading that? It's just making me sad. Yeah, I know. And, 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 and I guess this movie falls right in the line of being like an art house film and a yes. blockbuster. And it was neither. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't a blockbuster. I mean, it flopped. Yeah. Just like the original. Yeah. You know? And yeah, I mean, people don't have that. I mean, 35 years is a long, long time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And maybe we need to wait 35 years for this film to be considered amazing. I did have to watch the original about three or four times before yeah. I realised how amazing it was. Yeah. And so perhaps I do need to go back yeah. to this one. Agreed. Yeah, yeah, I agree. All right. Well, if you want to add to this discussion of Villeneuve's film, we'd love to hear from you. So just head to facebook.com slash senses of cinema and leave a comment there on our episode thread. Jacques Teneur was a titan film director in Hollywood, travelling there from France to follow in the footsteps of his domineering father, also a film director, Maurice Teneur. He became a wanted talent in Hollywood following the success of Cat People in 1942 and made many films for Ico Pictures before moving to other studios, including Columbia. As a man who made films in almost every genre, his skills as an imaginative, inventive director were in demand for much of the 1940s and 50s. And still, he is probably best known for working with noir and the supernatural. 
In Night of the Demon, Dana Andrews says, some of my best friends are ghosts. And I almost feel like this could be Turner's favourite tagline himself. Mark, I know you never think he's made a bad film. (laughs) What is it that you love about him? (laughs) I mean, even the bad films are kind of insanely good fun. Um, I think one of my favourite things about him is that they're all so weird that (laughs) superficially you think that they're oh, this is a horror movie, this is a, you know, this is a thriller, this is a western, this is a whatever. And then the more you dive into them, the more you start to realise that everything that you were assuming is kind of wrong, that on a superficial level, everything appears to be conforming to genres, appears to be doing what you would expect. But then issues of kind of class and gender and kind of genre revisionism is always kind of bubbling underneath it so that the more you dive into the, mm. his films, the more you realise that this is actually this in, insanely provocative, weird, kind of loopy sort of investigation of narrative, of genre, of people. Um, and if I can throw in one other thing that I really love, just pretty much every single frame of every single one of his films. <laughs> you know, Very I'm, inventive. Yeah. Oh, it's like, I reckon you could eat them, um, you know, it just almost kind of living with this kind of idea of portraiture, just these incredibly framed images and the play of light and sound is just, just makes me so happy. Every single film is a winner, even comedy of terrors. Mm. I, I think Turner represents this uh, dying breed in Hollywood of filmmakers that didn't, you know, pride themselves in being like this artists and art- auteurs and I'm too good to do genre movies yeah. kind of thing, right? Um, I can think maybe of someone like Ron Howard today who, I don't, he's made some fantastic films like Frost Nixon sure. and he can move to uh, the Han Solo movie now and they're more like craftsmen rather than auteurs, yeah. right? And when we revise our filmography, we can see that they did have that so like bubbling thing underneath, right? So they, they did cater for the studios, you know, but they also catered for their own artistic endeavors. And I think that's a dying breed in, in Hollywood. There, uh, there's a great line that he, I read an interview with him where he said something along the lines of that he basically never turned anything down. Yeah. Because, and, and he wasn't going to turn his nose up at anything, that mm. he basically did what the studios told him to do. Yeah. Because he was never sure whether he was making an assumption about what he'd be good at. So that if he was like, oh, well, I'm kind of, my, my area is horror, and he's offered a Western, well, who knows? I mean, his, his attitude was always, I guess I'll do it and find out. Yeah. Because maybe, you know, stumbling into a, a Western is going to be the thing where he discovers new language or new ways of telling a story, which, of course, is what he did. So mm. he's this kind of nutty guy who just takes on anything. Yeah. And makes it his own. And I think what's so great about that, I mean, I love that quote that you bring up, Mark, but, you know, it calls on what you were saying, that he just sort of works with new genres and he does things and he makes a horror film and it's not necessarily um, what we thought a horror film was going to be or what the studio thought a horror film was going to be. I mean, that's what Cat People was because the studio kind of thought it was going to be terrible and they hated it and audiences hated it at the beginning, you know, in all of those test screenings. Um, but he and Val Luton, of course, had invented this new way of, of 
telling a horror story yeah. um, and of scaring the audience, not through, you know, showing a monster, but through, through you know, not showing the monster, yeah. Yeah. Um, through kind of hiding it and just being more psychological. So that was probably one of the things that contributed to um, his success in all genres was that he brought knowledge of other ways of telling stories. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, if we think about something like Cat People, I mean, that, how unusual and peculiar is that film? Like the, the, the absolute premise of it is so interesting, even though it's like, here comes a crazy cat to eat people. I mean, it, starts to work through all of these kind of really fascinating things about kind of gender and anger and yeah, jealousy and sexuality. And, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's such a such a strange and deeply fascinating film. I mean, like, we were chatting a little bit about the remake, the Paul Schrader remake with Natasha Kinski a few mm-hmm. years yes. later, which is very nudie and very gore. Yeah. Right? Which is exactly what Turner didn't do. <laughs> I know. But it was, it was implicit there. You know, this sexual tension was there. But it wasn't out in the open, which is what made it a much better film than the remake. Yeah, I mean, just that you know that really famous scene where I think it's Jane Randolph is in the swimming pool mm. and she she hears the cat, she knows the cat's coming, and Simone Simon walks in and has this kind of fairly aggressive conversation with her, and she gets out of the Jane Randolph gets out of that pool and lifts up her robe and it's cut into ribbons, like that is such an intense image yeah. that, that implies that violence without actually saying, and now, you know, let's have a head roll here. Yeah. Yeah. The other one that, that I find really fascinating is Canyon Passage mm-hmm. um, that, that I uh, sat down and watched again the other night. That's one of those examples of a film that is the Western that suddenly seems to undo everything we understand about the Western. Mm-hmm. So it looks like it's about, you know, it's, focuses on communities and, you know, building houses and, you know, the possible threat from the Native Americans. But the more you look at it, it's actually about the destruction of the community because essentially everything gets burnt down. You know, the there's a, a real emphasis on let's, you know, procreate and get married and have as many babies as we can so that we can settle this frontier. But it's all about these relationships that fall apart and everybody's in love with somebody else and then every you know, people start to die and they pair off with other people and it seems to sort of undermine that whole idea of we're all in love and now we should go off and have babies. Mm. I mean, even down to the Native Americans who are, you know, traditionally the threat in um, things like uh, uh, Western, you know, they're referred to as, you know, these terrible, horrifying red beasts when in actual fact there's also conversations about well, I guess it's okay. You know, it's understandable that they're trying to kill us because we're taking away their land and their hunting grounds. Mm-hmm. So that it, it's both kind of making, setting them up as the threat, but also recognizing why they're being attacked and almost kind of justifying the fact that the Native Americans want to kill them to reclaim their own land. Which is a very you know unique political statement yeah. for that time. It's so progressive. Mm-hmm. It's like sure, 1946 it was, or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was going to say that you know just after the war and that mm. that he was having you know so many reflections about what it meant to be an American or be living in America at this time. Um it was incredible. Yeah. I also love that film. I mean it's it's Technicolor. It's just so brilliant. The colors are are insane. Um, I don't know when it was set, but, you know, people kind of list sometimes their favourite autumn films. This film I think you could classify as one. I mean, the, the, the rich reds, the landscapes, just how many leaves there are, these 
there's these amazing shots where leaves kind of, you know, in a forest just go from this, from yellow through orange through red. It's incredible. Um, there are some shots that are like close-ups on, um, on people's faces against, um, you know, the leaves and against the sky. It's just brilliant, I think. Yeah, and another one that I've, I return to, I reckon I probably watch this film a couple of times a year is I Walked With a Zombie. Mm. And that that is one of those films that's, that like takes me to my happy place when I watch that film. Mm. And and purely because, you know, the story went that the studio says to Turner and to Luton, hey, we're just going to come up with a title. It's going to be called I Walked With a Zombie. Good luck. And almost in defiance of that expectation, he goes and basically does an adaptation of Jane Eyre. Mm. So that when you watch it, like, yeah, there were zombies, but it's also kind of, you know, the creaky old house, the the kind of cool, distant, slightly aggressive um, master of the house, the, the young, innocent, beautiful woman who enters into that, that landscape. Mm-hmm. And mixed in with all of this world of Jane Eyre is this incredible discussion about slavery yeah. and, you know, the, the undercurrent of slavery that exists in, um, I think they're in San Sebastian. Um, and basically the, the kind of, it's almost like a post-colonial sort of yeah. uprising where you're, you're getting essentially the, the sort of world of voodoo yeah. claiming the world of the white settlers. Yeah. It's just an extraordinary film. But on the surface, like big, dumb, stupid film about people being zombies. <laughs> Again, quite progressive for its time yeah. in terms of discussion about race. Yeah, there's this mm-hmm. incredible <clears throat> sequence really early on where Frances D is um, just arriving at San Sebastian. She's being driven to this mansion uh, by a, a, a black kind of taxi driver, essentially. And, you know, he says, well, you know, we were here and then the white settlers came, but, you know, we were basically dragged here on slave ships and, you know, that's been, you know, not so much fun. And Frances D says something kind of really obviously stupid, like, oh, well, at least it's like, good weather around here so so it's not so bad right and he's like if you say so and and it's just this little undercurrent that that lets us know that you know the you know the the people who have been brought here as part of the slave trade maintain that resentment they're not necessarily rising up against uh these white settlers yet but certainly by the conclusion of that film i mean what we see is ultimately almost the the victory of voodoo Mm. Well, I think we have to mention, um, you know, we're talking about how he covers all genres. Jacques Tourneur's, um one of his most famous films is Out of the Past, mm. um, I think. But I want to talk about Nightfall, which is another noir of his, which is from 10 years later, 1957. Um, and this is a brilliant film. It's so, uh, it's, there's so much tension in it, but it's so slow burning, which is obviously one of the brilliant things about noir. Um, this is... Really interesting because Out of the Past is a rural noir um, and so is Nightfall, but it transitions from the city. So it's this guy who who is on the run um, and he's in the city trying to hide out in Los Angeles. And so it's really brilliant because it, it um, presents Los Angeles as this place where, of course, no one can ever hide. Um, and then he escapes to the to the country, to rural Wyoming. He travels there in a Greyhound bus Um which is made quite a big deal of. Anyway, so it's this brilliant, of course, you know, what happens with all noirs is that, like, there's no safe spaces around and everything Mm. is really, really, um, really tense and really unsafe, that there's no refuge. 
Um, but, you know, I mean, it is a noir, but at the same time, there are all of these things that, that really um, kind of push up against the genre. So the, the lead character um, is played by Aldo Ray and he's very, um, you know, unlikely um, noir protagonist, I think. And also he, you know, the, the suggestion is that he's committed this crime, but at the end the revelation is that he hasn't, that he's a completely innocent man. Um, and Bancroft is the, the femme fatale who in her first scene, which is just incredible, they're kind of at this bar, um, this underground bar in Los Angeles. He meets her there and she's a mysterious woman and you think perhaps she's set him up, that she's led the criminals to him. Um, but at the end, she's just, a, you know, she's just an innocent woman as well who has fallen in love with him. Yeah. So there's no real femme fatale and there's no real um, crime. Um, I mean, the criminals in the end get their comeuppance um, in a very famous scene um, in the snow in rural Wyoming with a snow plough. Um, and I think that that's just a brilliant, you know, way to climax a, a film noir. Obviously, you know, vast white landscapes are in this incredible kind of anti-urban but very noirish um, landscape. Um, anyway, it's a brilliant film. Um, I've, I've seen it so many times. I did actually see it on um, the big screen in the cinema once, which was um, so fantastic. So if you get a chance, yeah. Anyway, he made a lot of noirs, but I think that's one of the best. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of interested just to, to round this out. I mean, he's had a retrospective at Locarno. Mm. I know that there's going to be another one at Canberra. Why do people keep coming back to him? So what is it about his cinema that, that drags us back to him time and again? I mean, I... I think that, you know, he was so inventive and that people mm. have not done the same thing that he has done, um, even though we're 50, 60 years in the future. Yeah. Um, and that that's why we keep going back to him because he is, is kind of really, really key in this, in doing this, you know, this visual, this language, this oral language, um, and also this storytelling um, mm. process. Yeah. And he's not generally regarded to be part of the canon right. of the golden era of Hollywood, Right. Uh, he's not a Capra, for example, or a Houston or a Hawks. So I think that uh, he's being re-recognized as a great filmmaker. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He's somebody who's kind of, in some ways, as you say, like the, you get all of your, your canonical directors. Yeah, exactly. And he's kind of outside of that. And yeah, I think exactly. That that's, that's an amazing thing just because... He kind of breaks all of those boundaries mm. anyway. He doesn't belong in a canon because mm. he's not easily sort of boxable. Yeah, yeah, and I think he would like that. Oh, I think he'd be <laughs> Yeah, stunned. absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so if you want to add to this discussion of Jacques Turner's filmography, we'd love to hear from you. Head to our website, facebook.com slash cinema and leave a comment there on our episode thread. Here at Senses of Cinema, we do our best to bring you the most interesting, provocative writing on cinema from across the globe, highlighting films from the past and the present to bring exciting new talent to your attention and to explore fresh perspectives on films from the past. But it's true that bringing this journal to you each quarter is an expensive proposition, so we've now established a Patreon account to help with meeting the costs of keeping Senses of Cinema running. We have a whole range of goodies for patrons that subscribe to our account. We're offering newsletters, including fresh takes on cinema from our editors and curated dossiers from our back catalogue. And if you're to subscribe at the higher level, you get all of the extras and an ad-free version of this very podcast so you don't have to be interrupted by me every single month. Plus, 
you'll get an additional bonus segment of the podcast each month out of our gratitude to your commitment to Senses of Cinema. It means that you'll contribute to our ultimate goal at Senses, and that's to be in a position to pay our fantastic writers for all the hard work they all do to keep the journal as terrific as it is. To become a patron of Senses of Cinema, visit sensesofcinema.com, click on our Patreon link, and enjoy the benefits of supporting those who bring the journal to you throughout your film year. Now we get to turn our attention to our third chair for this month, Cesar Alboran Torres. Cesar's article in the September issue of Senses of Cinema is called Spectacles of Death, Body Horror, Affect and Visual Culture in the Mexican Narco Wars. Cesar, for starters, congratulations on the piece. It's an incredible piece of writing. And, you know, I have to say, as I was working through it, I was kind of literally, my mouth was falling open like, this is stuff that I had no real understanding or awareness of. Mm. So thank you for writing it so that I've got at least a bit of a clue. What what drove you to write this piece on the, the Mexican narco wars? Well, first of all, I think it's uh, as an expat yep. in Australia, uh, for the past few years, I've been in Australia for seven years, eight years in total. And uh, basically the narco wars during that period have I intensified in Mexico. And there's a big disjoint between what's going on in the ground, you know, how the narco wars are affecting communities, how the narco wars are breaking the country apart on many levels, you know, like cultural, social, financial, you know, and what the media is representing, right? So there's independent blogs like uh, El Blog del Narco, which is a blog that I talk about here, where people send videos of executions done by the cartels, uh, kind of like in a whistleblowing kind of thing. It's been described as the WikiLeaks for the, for the narco wars to counter the mainstream media depiction of the narco wars, the government depiction of the narco wars, and, uh, and what the narcos want you know, people to know, right? So these videos are not created as propaganda, like ISIS, for example, these videos are created as threats to other cartels. So if they catch uh, someone from the other cartel and decapitate her or him on camera, then they send that as a threat to the, uh, to the rival cartels. So these videos are published in this, in this uh, block mainly and other blocks. And the issue here is that they border snuff film. Because there is no control over the audiences that are watching these videos. So what the piece is about is about how these videos follow the conventions of body horror mm -hmm, to try to understand the aesthetic qualities and capacities of these videos and the effective responses that these videos can uh, trigger and then how that's been replicated in Hollywood depictions of the narco wars. Right. So I'm fascinated by this idea of this blog that, just posts these videos. Yeah. I mean, what is there a kind of what's the response to it? Is there a government response to that? I mean, not, I assume not, is this like it's essentially a kind of national focused website, is it? Well, yeah. So the narco wars um, about ten years ago, there were two main, two or three main cartels. But as I as I uh, describe in the in the piece, the cartels have you know, fragmented into various cartels. So they now 
operate in most of the country. So yeah, it's a national thing. Uh, they publish not only videos but also news and photographs of uh, of the narco wars. Some of their whistleblowers and citizen journalists have been killed by the cartels. Right. Mm-hmm. So 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 like there, for example. Uh, there was this very famous case of a female citizen journalist who was captured by the cartels and her Twitter account was sort of like used by the cartel after she was killed. And they kept tweeting from her Twitter account. Or... As though uh, she was alive. As if she... No, like, like, no, she's dead now and we're tweeting on her behalf. Really? Or, you know, (laughs) the decapitated heads of two bloggers that were found um, on top of their laptops... With headphones on. Cesar, you um you talk about ISIS in this piece, yeah. um, and I am somewhat more familiar with the ISIS propaganda videos mm-hmm. than these narco war videos because uh, it's used as propaganda. And there was a film that screened earlier this year, City of Ghosts, that was about this these ISIS propaganda videos. Mm-hmm. Um, but you say that there are like there's stylistic differences because the ISIS videos are professionally produced yep. and the narco war videos are, are not really, you know, they're just kind of raw and yep. unaltered. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Precisely because of the purpose of the videos. So ISIS wants to use these videos for recruitment and to demonstrate power, right? I mean... What ISIS wants to do is to establish itself as a state. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's Islamic state as a caliphate. So ISIS wants to sort of like portray this image of power over their territory and of having the infrastructure of a state, including a media production infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So it follows uh, Hollywood conventions, their videos. They are very highly you know, their production value is super high and they use it to recruit and for mainstream Western media to take those videos and then broadcast them, which there's like some ethical issues with that as well. To generate fear. To generate fear and yeah. to, you know, like to echo their, their message. And narco videos are generally produced to threaten other cartels. So it's not so much about the aesthetics of it, but about what they are doing on camera. Which is like quite horrible. I mean, uh, the video that I describe in the in the paper in the article uh, is a manhandling of a corpse. Hmm? But that's the only video that I found where the victim was already dead. Hmm? Most of the times they are tortured and killed on on camera. Hmm? Which again, and the second part of the of the article talks about how then that's depicted in uh, in Hollywood as entertainment. I talk about this very famous scene from Breaking Bad yeah. in which uh, a cartel member's head is chopped off, uh, Danny Trejo's head, and then put on a pet turtle, mm-hmm. which was like, oh, this is so much fun. This is so funny, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, and that's what Hollywood does oftentimes. Mm-hmm. From Touch of Evil on, mm-hmm. you know, we can think about Soderbergh's Traffic. Yeah. We can think even about No Country for All Men, which is a fantastic movie, but it's a depiction of... Mexicans and Mexican victims, you know, is quite, uh, it's quite brutal. Do you anticipate, I mean, you say quite extensively that these Hollywood productions 
taken an uncritical stance towards um, these, mm. the Mexican narco um, wars and the drug cartel executions, yeah. which is really quite damaging, I think. Um, do you th- anticipate this might change given how Hollywood has presented the other um, throughout its time that has has possibly, you know, um, changed throughout the years, not in terms of the depiction of Mexicans but um, in other kind of ethnic representations? I, I don't think so, and not given the current political climate. I mean, and I do think, and one of the motivations I had for this piece was uh, the, you know, the Trump era, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, where, you know, Mexicans are these bad hombres, you know, and representation does matter. And in this case, it matters in terms of policy as well. You know, it's easier to build a wall if you think Mexicans are, you know, like a bunch of savages. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm whose debts don't really matter. Mm-hmm. So I don't think so. Just like, um, you know, um, the Afghanis weren't represented rightfully in Rambo Three, for example, mm-hmm. during the yeah. 1980s. Just how uh, the Japanese weren't represented rightfully during World War Two. So I don't think so. Okay. I mean, and when we talk about, we were talking about genre uh, in the previous segment, when we think about the new Western, right? The Mexican border being the new frontier and this revival of the Western and Mexicans taking the place of Native Americans. So I don't think, so I think, uh, I think the total opposite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the total opposite is, is true. Although I do think that independent filmmakers in the U.S. and some uh, Hispanic production companies like Univision and Telemundo are trying to represent uh, Mexicans and Hispanics in general a little bit differently. I was really interested. You address um, concepts of gender in these mm-hmm. in these videos. Mm-hmm. Can you speak a little bit about how it, it, it seems to me that there's a, a kind of almost a, a different representation of violence yeah. in you know the the videos containing men as opposed to those that contain women? Can you speak yeah. about that? Okay. So this is a this is a big issue that I barely touch on in the um, in the article. There's been and now long history, two decades long history, of violence against women and executions of women being captured on camera. Mm-hmm. There's a city called Juarez, which is depicted in uh, Denise Villeneuve Sicario, in which American companies set up sweatshops after the North American Free Trade Agreement was signed. And then they just packed their things and left. So all of these women that came from rural areas had you know, nothing to do. There were you know, high levels of unemployment. Uh, Mexico is not generally a country that consumes a lot of drugs, but there's, you know, like big culture of drug consumption in that uh, in that city. And there's been feminicides for a long time. So women that are unaccounted for, uh, bones found in the desert. And one of the theories is that these women are killed for voyeuristic purposes. Hmm? So for uh, wealthy foreigners, mainly Americans, that pay to get them killed on camera hmm? or to rape them and uh, get them killed just when the men are about to climax. Apparently, that's the most pleasurable thing these assholes 
that my first swear yeah. word can experience. And all of that is captured on camera. So there is a relationship between these feminicides and violence against women and snuff film. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that's what I was going to say. And the aesthetics I mean, yeah. of a snuff film and the culture around execution videos. Yeah. But all of this is, uh, I mean, it's not out in the open, obviously. No. Mm-hmm. It's on the dark nets and, and all of that. So uh, there's some videos that depict the execution of women in, this, in these cartel videos as well, but the majority are men. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's one of a 17-year-old girl who gets decapitated on camera, and yeah. that's just I, – I wish I couldn't see it. Yeah, I mean, that, that was one of the things that mm. I wanted to ask you. Like, you know, as somebody who's researching something like this, there has to be a point where you say, well, I'm going to have to in some ways engage with this – kind of commerce like i've got to enter into the, the yeah. bargain with the with the videos mm. i mean what was morally how was like how did you come to a decision that that was something you were going to i mean watch I'm, and I'm obviously with? like one i do think that this kind of research needs to be done yep. and no one is doing it and two i think i'm not obviously i'm not doing it for bourgeoisistic purposes or no. anything like that right but you do have to Shield yourself from from it, and you have to be good to yourself and protect yourself as a researcher. Yeah, when you do this, because they are quite affecting. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I I can't imagine reading about them was was gutting enough. Yeah, I thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, yeah. it's 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 very tough to watch them, and yeah. I, I mean, this I'm writing a book on right. the on this matter, and I'll just write it not as a marathon, but like a series of sprints. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because you really have to shield yourself from that. And I mean, people have written about war photography and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and conflict zones for a long time. And I do think that this needs to be acknowledged yeah. for two reasons. I think that this is a de facto civil war in many regions of Mexico. And I think there are geopolitical actors that are responsible for it. And I think there needs to be a sense of accountability. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. Uh, Unless the U.S. corpse drug consumption in the territory, this thing won't end. And unless the flow of arms stops from the U.S. to Mexico, this thing won't end. You know, so I guess it's it's just a way of saying this is happening. Right. You know, this is what war looks like. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's fair to say that, you know, at least within Australia, like I had very little understanding of what any of that meant. I mean, it, I mean, I guess we've all got a sense of there's something going on there, but I don't think until I sat down and really went through your piece that I really understood how entrenched it is no, and as, as an, part of that society. It's entrenched in our everyday lives. And I yeah. think that increasingly the global north is shielded and blind yeah. to the production processes and the chains of labor involved in, you know, a Wall Street banker, you know, doing a line of coke at work. Or even us, you know, like using a smartphone. When, you know, the materials needed for that are directly related to child soldiers in Congo. Yeah. You know, so I think there's, yeah, I mean, it would be impossible to be totally conflict-free in terms of the things that we consume. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think that there needs to be at least an acknowledgement of that. I mean, drugs are an illegal uh, good. Uh, I mean, the, the cartels stretch worldwide. 
as far as Australia, there's a strong presence of cartels here. So, uh, yeah, I mean, drug consumption here is directly related to violence there. Yeah. So I think that that needs to be acknowledged. And I think that uh, I think this sort of like sense of comfort that the global north generally has. Yeah. I think it's one stupid and two dangerous. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's an incredible article. So if people have not yet had a look at it, head over to censusofcinema.com and, and read Seth's article because it will blow your mind. Um, and, and really a, a fascinating look at you know, kind of mediated images and, and how we respond to images that we might find repulsive, but how they can be used and then appropriated and, and yeah. changed depending on... And using this framework of body horror, I found yeah. really powerful, yeah, just reading it through that, that way and that understanding because yeah. that speaks to something that we can we can understand, yeah. um, you know, as consumers of media yeah. who aren't directly related to this, this violence, yeah. I think. Incredible, fantastic, um, fantastic article. So if you would like to add to that discussion about Cesar's incredible article, we'd love to hear from you. So just head over to facebook.com slash senses of cinema and leave your comments there. And Cesar might even be able to climb on and, and answer some of your questions. Each month, we'll be sharing something that crossed our screens, film, television, computer, that we've been getting into. It's a chance for us to share something meaningful to us and also to find out what our co-hosts are doing at the moment. So, Mark, what have you loved this month? <laughs> well, all right. What I've loved this month has not been so much necessarily screen-related. It's been response to a screen, and I am completely besotted with people's reaction to mother. And, <laughs> and that, is, that is what I've been returning to again and again. Look, I mean, some people are claiming this is like the second coming of cinema and some people are saying that this is the, the, the death of narrative cinema. It's, it's covered all bases. I'm loving the fact that people are walking into this film and even if they're hating it, they're coming out with all of these wackadoo ways of trying to make sense of that film. Um, so, you know, I know that I think it was A.O. Scott started out saying this is this is an outrageous comedy, and I'm thinking I don't know about comedy. Um, you know, <laughs> the, the the kind of you know that conclusion of that film, not so much with the laughter. Um, other people are saying this is proof that Darren Aronofsky is an insidious, evil kind of spawn of Satan, um, and other people are saying, hey, this is a really fascinating investigation of. You know, kind of the creative process. Some people are talking about it as the the political, uh, the uh, biblical allegory. We're also getting um, Aronofsky himself, who's now insisting that it's about climate change. And even if you think that film is pants, and it might in fact be, um, I love the fact that people are diving in and going nuts trying to make sense of that film. So even if you think it's rubbish, I think it's done something great because it's provided me with endless amusement having people kind of either kind of give it this incredible, you know, know, lavish praise upon this this crazy film or insist that this is clearly the the work of a misogynist evil devil. And that's making me happy. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Me too. I'm actually uh, really enjoying the discourse around it and seeing people engage so fully with a film. Have you watched it? Yes. I haven't. But uh, but I've enjoyed the response to it. Yeah, yeah the response cool. has been fun. You liked it though, didn't you? 
No, 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 you hated it. I hated it. I yeah. thought you were just <laughs> yeah. pulling my yeah. leg. Yeah, hated no. it so much. And I kind of liked it. <laughs> so we're going to fight later on. We are. Cage match. Cesar. What have I liked this yeah. month? The third season of Jill Soloway's show, Transparent, which uh, was released a few weeks ago. I just love this space for honest depictions of uh, transgender individuals. I think that it's a beautiful, heartfelt, and very engaging show. I also think that it does what Six Feet Under failed to do in the later seasons, which is to depict this family complexity in all of its, you know, in all of its glory. It's a beautiful depiction of Los Angeles as well. It's an amazing uh, depiction of Jewishness in America and the shifting nature of Jewishness in America. And and it's a very intense exploration of gender. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I watched the first season. Did you? Have yeah. you seen it? I haven't seen any of it. Yeah. I watched the first season and loved it. Yeah. And then I almost felt like it was so kind of, uh, I don't want to say dense, but kind of weighty. Yeah. That, I, that I think that I was what I was hoping for was something a little lighter, and I found that it was just getting darker and darker and darker. It, it, it does get dark, but it's also full of joy. Yeah. And that's the thing, and I think that's what Six Fear Under failed to do, talking about the other great quality yeah. television narrative about family. Uh, it, it finds moments of joy almost in every episode. Mm-hmm. And I think that's quite quite unusual. And also I think that its 30-minute format makes it very easy to watch Yes. rather than like a heavy hour sitting through it. It's 30 minutes. It's so easy to binge watch. I watched the whole third season in maybe two days with my <laughs> partner. And yeah, I just think – and the acting, is, the acting is fantastic. I think 30-minute 30 minute blocks, are, it, like that's an underappreciated form. Oh, like it's yeah. just yeah, so absolutely. good. I mean, you know, nothing against Six Feet Under's 50, 55-minute episodes. Yeah. But, um, yeah, 30 minutes is just so good. Yeah, it's like that famous quote from, I think, Bernard Shaw. Sorry for writing a short letter. A long letter, I didn't have time to write a short one. <laughs> right? So, like, creating yeah. a 30-minute, you know, narrative arc, dramatic arc, is quite hard. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they do it beautifully in, in transparent. And it's so heartfelt and so emotional. And particularly in the current political climate, at least in yeah. Australia, you know, uh, with the Jess vote, vote Jess, everyone. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a discussion about gender and sexuality and the difference between the two, yep. you know, and I think more than any other show, Transparent has uh, explored the significant and basic difference between sexual orientation and gender more beautifully than any other show that I have seen and more honestly. Terrific. So, uh, yeah, if you haven't watched it already, watch the whole thing. I will have and I think Amazon is doing a great job as this like third or fourth quality television producer. Great. Excellent. Mm-hmm. So, Eloise, what made you happy in October? Uh, well, I just have to state that I have a bit of a conflict of interest here because I'm a programmer for the Melbourne Cinematheque. Um, <laughs> but something that I really loved this month was seeing In the Cut, Jane Campion's In the Cut on 35mm. Mm. Um, I mean, this is a film that is famous for its grainy, gritty depiction of New York City um, on the streets and in the like apartment interiors. Um, it's seedy, both seedy and lush, um, filmed by Dion 
BB. I don't I know how. They, okay, yeah. let's just go with that. Um, but you know, as with the original Blade Runner, to which the celluloid format is so important because in depicting the graininess mm. of a, of a um, dystopic Los Angeles, I think that the thirty five millimeter format is so great for to bring out the noir kind of sense of in the cut. Um, Anyway, so that was brilliant. And as a companion to that, I'm just going to um, recommend as well the annotation published in Senses of Cinema, um, written by an academic at the University of Queensland called David Richard. Um, anyway, I really like he. So in the film, Meg Ryan is fascinated with this term disarticulates that the policeman played by Mark Ruffalo describes this murdered woman's body as being disarticulated, I think. Anyway, he says that Meg Ryan's star persona, um, which is so tied to romantic comedies, has been um, kind of disarticulated from itself because she's now in this erotic thriller, not a romantic fantasy. Um, and I just really liked that um, that piece of writing that kind of spoke about that. Um, anyway, I know that In the Cut played, I think, on uh, in the Jane Campion season in New York recently as well. So I don't know how frequently it happens, but if you ever get a chance, then, then that's my recommendation. Fantastic. Well, thanks for joining us on our very first Senses of Cinema podcast. We've got more great things coming up on the podcast and in the journal in the future. December and January are really particularly busy uh, for me because it's the beginning of our annual Census of Cinema World Poll. Calls for contributions are going to go out to our readers in November, so keep an eye out for that. If you're subscribed to our email uh, account, then you'll be notified that calls for World Poll are on the way. Um, But now that we have a podcast as well as a journal, we're also thinking that maybe along with your print poll that you will ultimately be sending to me, People might also like to record a little something to coincide with our World Poll podcast that we'll do in January. So this is your chance to be on the podcast with us. So along with your written poll of the best that you saw in 2017, we're inviting you, if you wish, to contribute a 30 to 60 second audio file clip in which you state your name, your location and the best film experience you had in 2017 and why. And you might just find yourself included in our podcast early in 2018. But for now, thanks to Eloise Ross, and thanks to our amazing third chair for this month, Cesar Alboran Torres, and thanks also to our technical producer, the brilliant Troy Morey, to Peter Mercado for his assistance with this episode, and to Swinburne University for the use of their facilities and their incredible recording studio. I'm Mark Freeman, and thanks for listening to the Senses of Cinema podcast, and we'll speak with you again next month. <laughs>